Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome, welcome. Whether you're a regular listener or a new listener to the show or uh, someone from a different star system, uh, which in which case I assume you're also listening for the first time. We're going to be talking about UFOs today, not for the first time. Uh, I think it's important to remind people that UFO means unidentified flying object. It doesn't automatically mean visitor from another star system. Um, I mean, that's one thing it could be, but it's unidentified. Uh, and I, I think even since the last time we did a show on this topic, attitudes have changed the way journalism mainstream journalism is handling this question has changed it even appears that the the way that the u.s military is handling this question is also evolving and so we're going to try to explain that to you oh yes i should also add the way astronomers at prestigious universities are handling the questions have always have also changed and a little bit later on the show we're going to talk to avi loeb who's uh, an astronomer at harvard and he's kind of the reason that we decided to do another show uh, because uh, of an object that uh, has visited our solar system, uh, which he says does not really correspond to any of the ways that physics, astrophysics, would anticipate the behavior of such an object. Uh, and he thinks that we should strongly consider the possibility that it is a made object and that it is visiting from someplace else and maybe kind of like a space buoy or something. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to all of that. But bef- but before that, we want to talk a little bit about some of the new reporting on this. And to do that, uh, we are relying once again, uh, as we have in the past, on Leslie Kane, an investigative journalist, author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Uh, she has been involved in uh, reporting for the New York Times uh, about this issue, including a- an article last month. Uh, wow, what is that? Navy pilots report unexplained flying objects. So, Leslie Kane, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be with you. So maybe we should begin by reminding people or acquainting people uh, with um, the way that the government has acknowledged looking for and looking at these things through something called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, uh, which existed within the annual Defense Department budget. So, so what is it or was it? I guess there's some confusion about whether it still exists or not. Sure. I mean, that was a program, we'll just use the acronym, which is AATIP, A-A-T-I-P. And we, we broke the story in December of 2017 in the New York Times about the existence of that program, which until then was kept secret. But basically, it was a very small program within the Department of Defense that studied, investigated, collected data on incidences involving UFOs in which military people were involved. So they would receive cases from the Navy, a lot of cases from the Navy and other military people, pilots, army people, etc., and they would just keep data on them and try to understand, you know, what, how the objects were behaving, how the technology could possibly work, because what they told, what, what they reported and what they told me through interviews was that these objects demonstrated capacities that we don't have on this planet. I mean, that's what they were stuck with, these such sophisticated technology that they doubted very, very strongly that this belonged to Russians or Chinese or anybody, any adversaries of ours. 
but they have to take it very seriously because of that possibility. And if something is in our airspace and you don't know what it is, it's it's the uh, you know it's the obligation of the Department of Defense to look into this. And so that's what they were doing. And the program does continue today. Um, it does. Okay. So because I think there was some question about that, and right around I think the time that your uh, article ran, Luis Elizondo, who was this uh, career uh, military and, and intelligence guy who had been running the program, stepped down, and he kind of complained at the time that the work wasn't being handled properly. I, maybe you could say he's a pretty fascinating figure in all this and has not by any means gone away. Um, tell us uh, what his criticism was. Yeah, I mean, he let, he resigned the program in October of 2017, and he wrote a, a letter to Secretary Mattis, who was, the, the, you know, the uh, defense head then, stating that the problem was that there were not enough resources devoted to the program. I mean, basically, he was dedicated to this program. He felt it was extremely important that it represented a national security issue. He wrote this in his memo, but because there were no resources being devoted to it, and people, other people in the Department of Defense thought it should be shut down. It was really a struggle for the people to maintain the program. And he, Elizondo thought that the best way he could draw attention to this was to do it from the outside. The refunding for the program did stop in 2012. It, you know, so they, but they, according to the people involved, and I've interviewed many of them, they said that they continued to work anyway, just with basically no resources. So they sort of integrated into their regular work at the Defense Department. But it was very difficult because of the lack of support that they had. So uh, I know that certain things have changed, including, I think, the Navy coming up with a different set of standards or, or practices for pilot, the way pilots can and should report encounters with things that they see but don't understand, things that are truly unidentified aircraft. Is there more of a change within the military, a, a more of a willingness to talk about this as something other than just, you know, ridiculous scuttlebutt? Yeah, I absolutely think there is. I think the, the time story in December 17th, which broke the fact that this, the, the ATIP program existed, absolutely opened a door for members of Congress to take this seriously, for other departments to take this seriously, for the Navy to be more open about it. Because once you establish the fact that the Department of Defense is investigating this and takes it seriously, then everybody else can sort of say, oh, it's not a joke. And it really did have an impact. And then when these reports have surfaced about these Navy pilots, which we wrote about in our most recent story, um, the Navy's response, and even before that, the Navy's response has been to issue these new guidelines for reporting, which is an, it's an acknowledgement on their part that they also take them seriously and that they're going to be open about the fact that pilots need to have a mechanism through which to report the phenomena that they see. So that is all a very, very positive development. All right, let's uh, hear a little bit of, uh, of what that sounds like when Navy pilots see something that uh, doesn't correspond to their understanding of flight. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. Oh my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, thank you. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not. It is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's a thing, it's rotating. 
One of the things that came out of this investigation was the finding that uh, Navy pilots address each other as dude a lot. They call each other yeah, dude funny, right? pretty much constantly <laughs> uh, throughout the longer yeah. versions of these tapes. So, yeah, I mean, I think at one point, you know, you can hear there's kind of just an amazement and sometimes an amusement in the voices of these pilots. And I, I've heard some of the more extended tapes. But there's also there's been at least one instance where the pilots felt uh, all, like they were almost colliding with something. I think something actually flew right between two planes in a way that genuinely alarmed and kind of angered the pilots. Correct. I mean, there was an incident off the, and this was all involved with the USS Roosevelt, which was stationed off the east coast of the United States, and there was an incident uh, in, in late 2014, I believe it was maybe early 2015, where there were two pilots flying only 100 feet apart from each other. That's very close. And this object zoomed between them. One of them described it as looking like a sphere encased in a cube, a very strange thing. But that's dangerous. And they they were so alarmed by it that they filed a mishap report, an official report with the Navy reporting this incident. I just want to comment on the tape you just played, too, Mm. that actually for people who are interested in that, it's actually part of it. It it accompanies a video, Mm -hmm. shows the object that the two pilots are talking about. So if people go to the New York Times website, they can view that video. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll try to link to the New York Times article in which that uh, video is embedded in our webpage uh, for this uh, for this show, Leslie Kane. So, so, I mean, for pilots, you know, for Navy pilots, for military pilots, this it. This creates quite a dilemma and has, I think, for for decades, because on the one hand, you see something. Part of your job is reconnaissance and knowing what's out there. You see something that you don't understand. It's not corresponding to the way that, you know, human made objects fly. It either stops in a way that they're not supposed to stop or accelerates or turns in ways that nothing really could do at speeds where, you know, most things would come apart. Uh, And so it's sort of part of your job to document that and tell people about it. On the other hand, you don't last very long probably as a military pilot if people think you're seeing things that aren't there. So maybe talk a little bit about the burden on these pilots to figure out, you know, how to share what they what they think they know. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important point, Colin, because it's just not fair to the pilots. You're absolutely right that they feel that they cannot talk about it or that even if they talk about it by the, among themselves, they certainly don't feel that they can report it or be public about it, report it to their superiors or things like that because there's such a stigma around this, as you point out. They're afraid that they'll be laughed at or that it might even affect their jobs. And we could only find two pilots that would go on the record about these incidences off the Roosevelt. We talked to three others who would not go on the record, and there were dozens and dozens more who saw these things, and none of them are willing to talk about it. So this is a serious problem. Again, I think it's starting to change along the lines of what we discussed earlier, but it's just very, very unfair to these pilots and to commercial pilots who also see these things, and anybody anybody with credibility who sees them uh, needs to be taken seriously. You know, in reading the New York Times coverage of this, a lot of it I thought was, you know, very easy for me to process, to understand that there's things out there that are behaving very oddly. Nobody's saying for sure they come from a different uh, star system or anything like that. They're just something nobody can understand how or why they do things. But as we got a little bit more into some of the work that's been done quietly by the government and with and and with entities contracting with the government to do this work, it, then it got kind of X-Files 
profiles the uh, Leslie, and I'm thinking in particular, uh, there's a man named uh, Bigelow, who's uh, I think a multimillionaire in his own right, and I think an associate of Harry Reid, who was the senator, one of the senators, very interested in, in all of this. Uh, but uh, this is from the the article that you co-reported under Mr. Bigelow's direction. The company modified buildings in Las Vegas for the storage of metal alloys and other materials that Mr. Elizondo, that's Luis Elizondo, the guy who was for a long time running this program, and program contractors said had been recovered from unidentified aerial phenomena. Researchers also studied people who said they experienced physical effects from encounters with the objects and examined them for any physiological changes. Um, in addition, researchers spoke to military service members who had reporting, reported sightings of strange aircraft. Well, that last sentence, ah, it's very well within my realm of understanding about what goes on. But uh, when we got into those, um, those alloys, uh, metal alloys and other materials, can you say a little bit more about that? Because that, that, it does get a little Fox Mulder at that point. I agree with you, and it's, it is really, really, it's incredible, I know. And, and, you know, I have seen documents that, and spoken to these people myself, so I know that what we reported in the Times was absolutely accurate. The problem is that most of the information regarding specifically the materials, as example, is classified. So there's absolutely no way that we can report on what they have or where it is or where they found it or what they've learned about it. Any of that, it's all classified, but... It does seem to be a fact that these there are materials in the possession of officials that appear to come from these crashed UFOs, and I have been able to confirm that. And in fact, Elizondo recently was interviewed and, and made that statement himself. The sad thing is that, of course, we all want to know more about it, and we simply cannot get access to that information. You, you know, it is interesting how much people, when they see something uh, uh, and feel the need to tell somebody about it, they almost invariably kind of apologize for it. Um, we're going to play a, a clip that, you're, that you actually shared with us. This uh, comes from uh, O'Hare International. I think what we're hearing is a gate attendant calling the control tower. Uh, let's hear a little bit uh, about it, and you can uh, tell us more. Okay, I'm sorry. What, uh, what can I do for you? Uh, all right. There was, I told Dave there was a disc flying outside above Charlie 17, and he thought I was pretty much high. But um, I'm not high, and I'm not drinking. Yeah. Someone actually has a picture of it, so if you guys see it out there. A disc? Like a frisbee? Like a UFO type thing. The, the music was added later, obviously. That was yeah. part of the actual Difficult audio. Yeah. Tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a, and I think this does show a little bit how far we've come since. This was in 2006, in November of 2006, when uh, a disc, a metallic-looking disc, was observed hovering over gate C-17 in the United Airlines terminal at Chicago O'Hare. And this was about between 4 and 4.30 in the afternoon, broad daylight. It was there for at least five minutes, and it was seen by many, many trained observers, mainly from the ground. So these were pilots people moving aircraft around, officials from United Airlines, and the person who made that call was actually a United Airlines manager. And everybody was out on the tarmac, and the pilots were radioing each other about it and leaning out their, their cockpit windows. So this manager called the tower, a very reasonable thing to do. Well, there's something hovering over gate C-17, she said. Did you pick it up on your radar? She's doing her job, right? And she gets laughed at. They ask her if she's high. Has she been partying too much because she said, what did they, she described it as looking like a UFO, like a Frisbee or something. So, you know, she, she had to, to prove that she was, hadn't been drinking to them by just stating the fact that this object was there. And this was a situation that could have been dangerous. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And here they were laughing at her. So um, this is this is just an example of the problem that we have. And I do think that today, if that incident occurred today, I don't think that kind of reaction would happen. I think we've really come a long way in the last 10 years. But nonetheless, it's this kind of thing is still a problem where it's just not taken seriously. And this is, incident was not even investigated by the FAA. And there's a long story about how they tried to give explanations for it that were completely ridiculous and never did anything about it. And none of those pilots, not one of those pilots involved or one of those witnesses was willing to put their name on the record as having observed this disc, even though 14 of them spoke off the record for researchers. So again, this is an illustration of the problem. So, so um, Leslie Kane, one of the arguments that gets sent back, and, and I think it it gets uh, used uh, against sightings like the ones that you've uh, documented that you've interviewed these Navy pilots about, and I think it'll also be sent back uh, against uh, Avi Loeb, who we're going to be talking to in just a few minutes, is just because something lacks an explanation just because you see a craft that is doing things that you don't think a human made aircraft can do that that doesn't necessarily point in any particular direction there are many things that people see that don't have a, a solid explanation but that doesn't necessarily lead to one path that doesn't put us on one path that 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 argues for either something coming from another solar system uh, another star system or you know some kind of alien visitors and what's your response to that there's just there's just a lot of stuff that flies around that turns up on radar screens and we just don't know what it is i would absolutely agree i mean i would agree 100 percent that we don't know what it is and that the what we call the extraterrestrial hypothesis is one possible explanation and it is one that needs to be considered but you're right we don't know what these objects are and that's the point we need to find out and I think that the officials involved with this, such as Mr. Elizondo and others, believe that they don't have the answer either. And they believe that we need to find out because this is something is it's in our skies that we can't explain. It's interacting with Navy pilots. There are near-miss collisions that have happened, you know, near-misses that have happened. And therefore, isn't it our job to find out what they are? That's the basic point. But I think, you know, when you the other point, though, is that it is very suggestive of something we don't, we really, really don't understand. Because we're not just talking about people, you know, guys sitting out on their back porch, they see a strange light in the sky. We're talking about data that has been collected and analyzed by the highest level officials within our government. Because this, this Department of Defense program worked with officials from the CIA and other departments to do the best analysis possible of data, which included radar data and videos. And so, you know, if they feel they can eliminate possibilities for this based on earthly technology, we, are, we really have a problem here. We really have something worth investigating. So I think it's really leaning towards something really strange and really unexplainable. But you're absolutely right. We do not know what these things are, and nobody, can, nobody should be claiming that we do understand what they are. All right. Well, Leslie Kane, investigative journalist, uh, author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials, go on the record and part uh, of a team uh, for The New York Times that has reported twice uh, on these sightings. Uh, thanks for joining our show again. Thanks for having me, Colin. All right. And now we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go to the world of astronomy uh, because there's yet another player in this story, another interstellar visitor, possibly. People are, we'd better fly. 
Then they shook their little green antennas, scratched their purple hair. Said this planet is an awful menace. Let's go back to where we came from. Two little men in a flying saucer just didn't care to You know, it's interesting because one, uh, one of the things that I discovered when we did a show about astronomy uh, when in April um, is how much I didn't know about astronomy. How much is going on in astronomy? How many discoveries are being made regularly? How many samples are being taken from comets and asteroids? Uh, I just had no idea any of that stuff was happening. And, and I think that's kind of the case for most of us. Um, there, there's a lot going on that we just don't have the time or inclination to follow. And that probably includes uh, the object known as Oumuamua. Uh, so joining us now is Avi Loeb, chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. So maybe let's begin with Oumuamua. Um, uh, people may not recognize that name or know about it. It was, I think, discovered in 2017. Just, you know, in a thumbnail, give us a sense of what this object is at least known to be. Yes, it was discovered uh, on October 19, 2017, by uh, a telescope that was scanning the sky and looking for asteroids that may... Uh, cross the orbit of the Earth. These are called uh, killer asteroids that are of danger to us. Uh, they were of danger to the dinosaurs, they killed them. And we would like to know if any of them uh, comes uh, in our future. And uh, so we are surveying the sky and in the process of doing so, uh, a telescope called PANSTARS uh, discovered an object that uh, originated from outside the solar system. We know that because it moves uh, too fast. and and it cannot be bound to the sun, it cannot come back again. Uh, it's just passing through one time, coming from outer space, and it represents, uh, it represented at that time the very first uh, object, large object, tens of to hundreds of meters in size, that uh, was discovered near us from outside the solar system. Now, uh, the week after it was discovered, uh, it was observed, monitored. Um, most astronomers thought that it must be a rock, uh, just like a, a typical asteroid or comet that uh, we see in the solar system. But as it spun around every eight hours within that week, it looked like it's very different than all the asteroids or comets that we have seen. It has a very extreme shape. Its brightness changed by a factor of 10, meaning that uh, projected on the sky as it reflects sunlight. It's the area that it shows changed by a factor of 10 every eight hours. And that means that it's at least 10 times longer than it is wide. And another very peculiar feature was that uh, it deviated from an orbit that is shaped just by the sun's gravity. And uh, we haven't seen any cometary tail or any gases around it. So such a push, uh, often is introduced by um, outgassing. A comet uh, ev gets evaporated by sunlight hitting its surface, and as a result, there is a rocket effect that pushes it. But there was no cometary tail and no gases detected. And so this, uh, all of these properties, and, and it looked like it, it is shinier than the typical asteroids or comets, and 
it, it simply looked weird, nothing like we have seen before. And one suggestion that came to my mind is that perhaps it's being pushed by sunlight bouncing off its surface, similar to the way that wind, wind bounces off the surface of, of a sail on a sailboat. And we are currently developing the technology of light sails where we propel spacecrafts uh, into space um, using uh, reflected light. Uh, so basically bouncing light off the surface and pushing it. And so perhaps there is this is a relic of some technological equipment that is floating out there. And we mentioned that possibility. We calculated um, uh, the properties of the object. Uh, it needs to be very thin and uh, sort of like a, a sail. Uh, and uh, we published it in a scientific paper uh, without planning to uh, advertise it too much, but then uh, two bloggers wrote about it and uh, it became viral on social media and, and in the press. Uh, and frankly, uh, to me, this is just a side pro uh, product that was not planned for. And I just tried to, to take advantage of this media attention in order to explain the scientific process, which this, this uh, object represents, which is you see something anomalous. You see an anomaly, something that is unexpected and you put uh, various possibilities on the table, and then with more data, with better evidence, you can rule them one by one. It's like a detective story. That's the way science goes. And most of the time, we are uncertain about how to interpret things. Now, I should say that since then, uh, as of last month, we detected, uh, we we've found out with an undergraduate student working with me, that there was actually a visitor uh, uh, almost four years earlier uh, in the form of a meteor that was discovered on Earth. So now, instead of using sunlight reflected off the object, uh, we're using uh, the atmosphere of the Earth as the detector. So when an object passes through the atmosphere, it burns up. That's what we see as a meteor. And there is one meteor that we found from 2014 that uh, we can extrapolate its trajectory back in time and figure out that it came from outside the solar system. So that, that is exciting because it's an, it allows us in principle to find an object here on Earth and actually put our hands on it uh, that came from outside the solar system. And that saves us the trip. We don't need to go to another star. We can actually examine what it's made of. Right. So, um, but that that meteor has a more commonplace explanation, right? I mean, there's sort of a sense in which. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, yeah. we, we simply don't have uh, information about that meteor except its trajectory. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that it was roughly a meter in size, so you know, roughly the size of a person or the weight of a person, and it burned up in, in the atmosphere uh, above uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, but it probably landed in the ocean, so we can't really search for the uh, meteorite, the, the relic of that object, for this particular object. But we don't know what it, uh, what it was made of and, and uh, what its shape was. Uh, we don't have that information. This, this object, this meteor, is, is interesting. Um, because The reason we found it is because I was uh, interviewed uh, uh, in the radio, just like this interview, mm -hmm. Uh, about uh, another meteor that was uh, noticed uh, above the Bering Sea uh, in, in Russia um, back in December, um, about half a year ago, uh, which was uh, 10 times uh, the blast of Hiroshima. It was a very bright event. Um, but um, 
in, in preparing for this radio interview, I wanted to, to enrich my uh, knowledge on, on meteors. So I, I went online and, and I found this website where all meteors that were discovered over the past 30 years are listed. Mm. And they were observed by uh, US government sensors. And um, I then approached the, the undergraduate working with me and said, um, Amir Siraj, that's his name, uh, would you please have a look at all these meteors and try to check if any of them could have originated outside the solar system based on its trajectory. Mm -hmm. And we found this one. Okay, so it was by chance. And then we wrote a paper about it. And the paper was rejected in the first round of review because the referees said, well, the US government releases just the information about uh, the velocity of this meteor upon impact, but they don't give us any error bars. They don't give us the uncertainties. And, you know, at first you might say, how is it possible that the U.S. government releases data without giving the uncertainties? And uh, upon further reflection, you realize that makes a lot of sense because the detectors are used for another purposes, for other purposes uh, related to uh, national security. Uh, and you don't want to provide the information about the uncertainties because that would uh, perhaps inform uh, uh, other people about the, the vulnerability of the detector system or, or you know, blind spots that it might have. Uh, and so um, it makes sense. Uh, so then <laughs> I was sitting at dinner uh, next to uh, a colleague from Los Alamos that is serving on a board that I chair in Washington, D.C. Uh, back in April, and I mentioned the story to him. His name is Alan Hurd, and the he offered to help uh, from across the national security fence. And uh, he was able to contact uh, the right uh, person. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Matt Hevner, who later uh, went uh, and found out who the person that analyzed the data on this meteor was, and he obtained the error bars on the measurement, at least an upper limit on them, and, and informed us of those declassified uh, error bars. And uh, as a result, we were able to conclude that um, at the 99.999% confidence, uh, this meteor originated from an object that was born outside the solar system. So, so, before, so uh, you, this is really yeah. very uh, rewarding to see colleagues like uh, Alan Hurd and Matt Hevner that, uh, you know, that are willing to disseminate the data that was originally classified and, and allow us to reach this uh, scientific conclusion. So I want to go back before we run out of time to Oumuamua. So we've got this object. It, it could be just flat as a pancake. It's a, a very elongated uh, object. And as you say, um, it doesn't have the kind of orbit that it would have if it were solely dependent on the gravitational uh, pull of the sun. And, and it appears to alter that kind of orbit. Uh, but it doesn't show the signs of what a comet does. A comet gets near the sun. Uh, gases start to be expelled. And there is, as you say, a rocket effect. No sign of that rocket effect. So you went from there to the possibility that it might be somehow a made thing, a made thing from somewhere else. Talk about how you made that particular jump. Right. So it was not a jump. Uh, I just follow, you know, the, the, the scientific procedure. So um, 
I try to think if it's not the cometary outgassing, what else can give it a push? And um, the only thing that came to my mind was sunlight reflected off its surface. So then the question is, you know, how thin should it be in order for sunlight to be effective at pushing it? If you have a very thick object with a relatively large mass relative to its surface area, it will not be pushed much. And uh, we figured that it needs to be less than a millimeter thick, so very thin yeah. uh, object. And nothing came to my mind as to a natural process that would make a millimeter thin you know, object that is tens of meters in size, uh, except if it's artificially made. Uh, and uh, that's why we made this, this suggestion. Uh, now, we should keep in mind that we ourselves sent out uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and there might be a lot of uh, civilizations out there that sent out equipment, and uh, it may be defunct by now. These civilizations might be dead. They may have, you know, soon after they reach uh, technological maturity, they may have produced the means for their own destruction. They may have not cared about their planet well enough, or they went to a nuclear war, they might not be around, and that's why we don't see any contact with them. But at the same time, the equipment that they sent out to space may be floating out there. So. You know, we should examine every object that enters the solar system from outside. This one looked very weird, and it was the first object that uh, we noticed. And, you know, you, you wonder what's, what its origin is. And irrespective if it's natural or artificial, we will learn something new by, by studying such objects. You know, one of the things that you talk about is how astronomy should teach us to be modest, be modest uh, about where we are in, in, in the continuum of possible technologies, modest about where we stand uh, inside the universe. So w apply that to this uh, particular phenomenon. Right. So um, that's what I tell my students, that uh, astronomy teaches us modesty. Uh, first, because there are so many other planets and stars similar to the Earth and the Sun. And, uh, you know, there are more planets like the Earth with surface conditions similar to the Earth that can host liquid water and the chemistry of life as we know it. There are more of those than the number of grains of sand on all beaches on Earth. So just the vast number of scale of, of the universe teaches us modesty. But beyond that, you know, I don't think that we are special. I don't think that we are unique. And the only way to find out is by going out to the cosmic street. Uh, you know, my daughters, when they were infant, they thought that the world centers on them. Uh, but they realized that they're not special or unique by going out and seeing other people. And, uh, and we as a civilization have to go through that. And uh, that's one way for us to mature. But the other aspect of modesty is that we might not be the smartest kid on the block. When we go out, we might find that others are much smarter than we are. And that can teach us a lot of things. Uh, we can learn about technologies that we have never imagined. We can find the uh, answers to questions that we that will take us a billion years to, to answer ourselves. So, you know, it, it may feel like copying in an exam uh, when you sit next to a student that knows more than you do. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's hard to avoid the temptation. 
Right. I think the other point that you make, which is an important one, uh, I'll sort of uh, twist around one of your examples. I dr- currently drive a 2009 Subaru Forester. If I were to buy a new car today, it would have technology in it that didn't exist, wasn't available uh, to the makers of my 2009 Subaru. And that presumably, if we don't destroy ourselves and, and, and the habitat of this planet, if we're around 100 years from now, we'll be using technology that would com- be completely unrecognizable and, and almost unimaginable to us right now. Exactly. Uh, technology uh, right now evolves on a time scale of a few years, and it evolves exponentially. And so within a hundred or a thousand years, you know, we will have things that we cannot imagine, and it would look like magic to us, sort of like uh, a caveman uh, uh, seeing a cell phone and thinking that it looks like a rock, you know. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think that once we... Um, see an alien technology and examine it, it would look like magic, like an approximation to God. It would do things that that uh, we just do not understand. Uh, and uh, that's a learning experience. You know, we need to, to figure it out. And uh, uh, the only way to do that is by looking through our telescopes, going into space, rather than putting blinders and saying, no, anything that we see out there must be a rock. Uh, and there could be nothing artificial out there, which is the, you know, the most popular view among uh, astronomers right now. Well, uh, we're going to end there, but uh, Avi Loeb, chairman of the, of the astronomy department at Harvard, thank you so much for sharing your time, uh, your ideas, and your expertise with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, we have um, time for one more segment. We're going to talk to somebody who's connected with a UFO observing uh, network here in Connecticut. But we're also we thought this would be a good thing to uh, make uh, an opportunity uh, for you to call in. So uh, if you're listening here between 1 and 2 p.m., which is when we're live, our number is 860-275-7266, I'll leave it pretty open, uh, any part of the conversation that we've had so far that sparks your interest and uh, sparks you to make a response, uh, we'd love to talk to you, or maybe you've just seen something you haven't ever shared before, 860-275-7266 is the number to call, we'll be back after this. can't believe this. We're risking the reputation of public radio on, hey, you with the three antennae, can you get off my board? To report on this completely unsubstantiated UFO nonsense. Hey, you little purple and green guy, can you put that down? That's a piece of somewhat outdated but highly necessary radio equipment. If anything like this happens again, happens again, I will consider, I will consider submitting my resignation. Hey, can you all just shut up? You, giant Tic Tac, stop shining that light in my face. I don't know how I get any work done here. Today's show was produced by Lily Mulder Tyson Scully and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Richard Dreyfus. On tomorrow's show, the nose talks about Rocket Man. No, it's about Elton John. 
No, he's not a rocket. Hey, who ate my lunch? Raise your tentacle. And now, back to Colin. If I am a guilty man, my crime is in daring to believe that the truth will out and that no one lie can live forever. I believe it still. Much as you try to bury it, the truth is out there. Greater than your lies, the truth wants to be known. You will know it. It'll come to you as it's come to me. Faster than the speed of light. I don't have to tell you who that is, right? That's John Kerry. No, I'm kidding. It's uh, obviously Fox Mulder uh, on the X-Files. So um, I wanted to make sure, first of all, we left some room for phone calls, if there are any. 860-275-7266. Actually, there already is at least one. Uh, John from Long Island. Hang on. I will get to you. Um, But I also wanted to talk to somebody. We wanted to talk to somebody. And when I say we, I should once again emphasize uh, this uh, show is produced by Lily Tyson, who's on loan to us uh, from the wonderful program Next by the New England News Collaborative, hosted by John Dankosky. You should listen to um, that program on a regular basis, whether you listen to it here uh, as a podcast or, or whatever. And alas, sadly, it'll be the last pro- program I ever get uh, out of Lily Tyson, who's a tremendous producer. Uh, she's going to be doing some other stuff. Uh, she's a wonderful producer. She's going to have an incredible future in public radio or wherever she goes. So I'm very sad that there won't be uh, more collaborations with her. Uh, right now, though, uh, she and I both felt it was important to talk to somebody. You know, there is this vast network of people who are interested in UFOs, concerned about UFOs, inclined to believe that there are interesting explanations for things that people see in the sky. A lot of them belong to something called the Mutual UFO uh, Network, which is acronymed as MUFON. And so the state director of MUFON, Mike Panicello, is uh, joining us now. So, uh, Mike, I'm guessing that like a lot of people who are interested in UFOs, you know, you take a certain amount of grief uh, from people. Um, I have a member of my family who's very interested in UFOs, and I'm constantly teasing him about it. Uh, On the other hand, it does seem like there's a shift in the climate. I just interviewed the chair of the astronomy department of Harvard, who is leaning heavily towards that kind of interstellar explanation for a made object showing up here. Um, The Navy is increasingly willing to at least listen to its pilots when they see things that couldn't possibly fly the way that they fly. Do you feel as though you're getting maybe a little bit of redemption here? Absolutely. And it feels great. Like, I'm not I'm not proud to uh to brag a little bit about that because for years everyone in our community has been laughed at and scoffed at and uh, ridiculed and every other adjective you can use to describe it and uh, now that the military is getting involved people are like well if the military is involved then okay this has some merit to it and it's nice to start seeing some recognition and um, being proven that we are actually have something going on in this universe that's bigger than us. So I know that MUFON, you guys have uh, sky watches where you meet somewhere and, and with telescopes and stuff and look at the sky, and you have luncheons where you have speakers and stuff like that. If you were to describe your own feelings about this, sort of what, what you believe to be true, what's important enough to you to make you participate in and even lead an organization like this, I mean, what is, what is it that you believe? I like the evidence. I always 
believe in the evidence. And when you look at some of the cases out there, like the deathbed confessions on Roswell of these um, individuals that served in the military, they were involved in the Roswell retrieval, and then later on in their life, they have given us deathbed confessions. I find that credible. Um, Rendlesham Forrest with Colonel Hull and his documents. There's a lot of documents out there. There's a lot of testimony out there that even though some of it is, is oral in the testimony, the, the dots connect, and you start seeing this, a lot of circumstantial evidence that just you can't ignore. And so for me, what resonates and what keeps me interested in the field is that there is enough commonality in all of these stories, whether it's with the documents, whether it's with tradition um, or research or anything of that nature, even just regular witness sightings, the Joe Schmo or the Lady Schmo that... Um, give us a sighting report, what they're seeing, what they're explaining to us, all have similarities. And for me, that means there's got to be something more out there. And every day I hear something like that, it just reinforces my interest in the field and makes me want to keep looking for that that smoking gun. And, and I think now, as you were mentioning earlier, that that paradigm is starting to shift and we might have that smoking gun come out soon. All right, so there's some people who are calling in, Mike, and want to talk. Um, uh, we'll start with John. I don't know if his name is John Schmo. I doubt it very much. Uh, he's calling from uh, Long Island. Hi, John. You're on the air. Yeah, thank you, sir. I, yeah, I'm, I'm good, okay? I'm a true believer. I just wanted to know if, in fact, there's locations of this anomaly. Uh, if you could give the sky location for a novice telescope user, which I do have a telescope, and I do search the sky just because I saw something weird by eye years ago. All right, so if, are I, you I, asking I, about Oumuamua? Because you're not going to be able to see that with your with your amateur oh, telescope. okay. So, yeah, so no, not, okay, okay, fine. Yeah, that was the one I was referring to because that's the one that just sparked my interest. And that's, I believe that's the most recent one because I'm not a follower of UFO sightings, but once I heard that come over in 2017, it was just yesterday, so uh, I'm not going to be able to see that with my novice telescope. That that was my particular question. No. That was my question. Yeah, I would encourage you to do okay. some more, some more reading about Oumuamua. You'll get kind of sort of a sense of how far away it is at this point and how impossible it is to, to see it. But um, but uh, but he raises an an interesting point, uh, Mike, which is because you guys do this, right? You have sky watching parties. I mean, is it at all, of any use to have binoculars and telescopes and just looking at the sky uh, in that way? Absolutely. We have a sky watching party um, every month, and um, we do. We just look at the sky. You can you can see a lot with the naked eye. You know, we're getting a lot of light pollution in Connecticut, unfortunately. What you, what you can see now and what you could see 10 years ago is, is a lot less, a lot more than, a lot less now. But you can see a lot. We've seen orbs. Um, we've seen unusual objects that you have been investigating. You, it doesn't matter where you are as long as you're looking up. And the problem is that a lot of people aren't looking up anymore. And so what I always tell people is, wherever you are, just look up. You'll be surprised what you'll see. That That's true, whether it's astronomy or UFOs. It's really good advice. All right. So let's, uh, let me go to Tom here. We're kind of running out of time, unfortunately. Here's Tom in Stanford. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, this is Tom. And I'm going to tell you about a couple of situations that I saw. All right. Try to do it briskly because the show's almost over. The yeah. first one, I was hiking with a girlfriend in the Pound Ridge Reservation on the back side of it. We got up on top of a ridge. This is broad daylight, mind you. Okay. And she turns around. She goes, what the hell is that? 
And I turned around, and it was a cigar-shaped ship. That thing was so close and so large, we could see the windows in it. That area in Cross River is not far from Indian Point, the nuclear power plant, because they monitor all our nuclear installations. The second time in that area, I was swimming up there with a friend that I went to grammar school with and some girlfriends. And all of a sudden, the girls started yelling his name, Dennis, Dennis. And I turn around and look, and he's laying face first down in the water. So I ran over, I pulled him out of the water, and as I did, we looked up and we both saw a flying saucer hovering over the lake. Tom, you've led an, uh, an exciting life. Uh, and, uh, Mike, I'm guessing those stories are not that unfamiliar to you. No, they're not. Uh, the UFOs over water is very common. A lot of times UFOs are reported over waters, reservoirs, lakes, ponds. Uh, obviously, USOs on the water, submersible objects, they're reported as well. Cigar-shaped craft are very common, uh, as are triangle-shaped craft. And um, most of the time, they are seen over nuclear installations, whether it's military or commercial. Huh. That's, uh, that is very odd. Uh, I, I don't know that I dare take a, a, another call here. We're kind of running out of time. Uh, maybe what I should do, uh, Mike, for people who maybe want to find out a little bit more about your group, and I know you do have stuff that people can sh- show up at and do uh, sky watching or go to a luncheon and hear a speaker, um, how do they find you? I, I'm assuming there's a web address where you know, all this can be looked up. Yes, it's uh, MUFON Connecticut. Uh, if you just do a Google search, MUFON Connecticut, we are the first Google search. Our website's MUFONCT.com. All of our events are free, so you don't have to worry about a price. Just come and enjoy the, the uh, event. All right. Uh, listen, this has been great. Thanks uh, so much for sharing uh, your time and thoughts with us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and special thanks again to Lily Tyson. Betsy Kaplan's been helping us out, uh, as she always does in any way that she can, this time with the phones. Thanks for, for Wolfie for being on the board and dealing with all those little creatures uh, who are in there hopping around on her equipment. It sounds like she's really got her uh, hands full. Uh, thanks also to all the guests that we had, uh, Lissy Kane, uh, Mike Panicello, and especially Avi Loeb uh, from Harvard. We will be back tomorrow with a different show.